Our Father, it's always our danger that we listen to the Bible thinking far too much of ourselves and far too little about Jesus. And please would you put that the other way around and by your Holy Spirit speak to us from the Bible so that we may humble ourselves and worship the Lord Jesus for his greatness. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. So John chapter 3. Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. Um, please, will people correct me every time I speak nonsense? Uh, it's just so helpful. Um, so Matthew chapter 3, and uh, the whole lot this time, verses 1 to 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We stop there. Our children are going to go to their groups, and then we'll resume. Keep 
the Bible open. Where we've got rid of the kids, I mean we've uh, sent them off to learn from the Bible. And uh, we're into Matthew chapter 3, where we were last week. And you might think, well, this is Groundhog Day, isn't it? Last week we only did verses 1 to 12. Uh, and I just felt that we had to do the whole thing because to understand the end, you've got to understand the beginning to see how the end fits in. Plus, if you do the whole chapter on this Sunday, it means we get to do the whole chapter on Tuesday. And if we missed out on the 12 verses because we had a prayer meeting, we didn't get a chance to discuss them. This way, we get to do that as well. So, we're quids in. And uh, what we're going to do is to step into a time machine tonight. Okay, there's one waiting outside. And you climb in, and what the time machine is going to do is to uh, we set the dials, and we're going to go back to the time of John. We're going to join the crowds and mingle among them, listening to what he had to say. And here's the question. If you were there, listening to all this, what kind of thing would you end up thinking about? I mean, it's pretty drastic stuff, isn't it? And what John is really saying is, well, get ready to meet God. Okay, any minute now, he's going to be here. Get ready. And that's actually what Isaiah said would happen 700 years before John. If you look at verse 3, you see it's the voice of someone crying in the wilderness. Look at verse 3. If you've now got the voice, who's coming next? the Lord and so therefore that's what John's saying to get ready to meet him and if you think we're well, 700 years he's going back a long time isn't it well yes it is but if you really want to get the whole picture you've got to go back even further because John's a version of an even older prophet called Elijah if you just look at uh, what it says in verse 4 that is the same dress the same diet. And let me tell you, when you've got uh, two prophets as famous as that, <coughs> spanning as many years of Bible history as they do, and both of them are pointing back to John, saying we're talking about him, we're here in advance of him, but at that moment in time, you will know that the most significant moment of the Bible of the whole Bible, the most significant moment the Bible's been waiting for is now. God is coming. But before you meet God, there are two things you must know before you get to meet God. First thing is that actually there's a warning of hell. Uh, if you look at a British motorway, uh, a British warning road sign, they've always got a warning triangle. Uh, Fanmaz hasn't quite spotted that, so one day he'll pass his test when he gets to know what a warning sign is like. We're just trying to help him in church, that's a warning sign. But the warning sign of Matthew chapter 3 is hell. Because that's what it's like to meet God. You're astonished. But look, that's what John says in verse 7. If you just have a look, he describes it as the wrath to come. That is exactly what's coming. 
and there are people running away from it. And he uses the really graphic description of fire to describe what that experience is like. In verse 10, imagine being burnt by unquenchable fire. Very graphic, isn't it? But here's the bigger shock. Who causes hell? In verse 12. Well, look at it closely. And you will see it's Jesus himself. He will gather the wheat into the barn, true, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So that's what it's like to meet God, says John. Undiluted wrath, unquenchable fire. And he's nearly here. And that's what it's going to be like when he arrives. Now you might think at this moment in time, John turns around and he sees the time travellers from Beckenfree Church. And he winks at us and he says, Ha, there you are. I nearly had you going for a minute, didn't I? Uh, actually, you're right. I mean, you come from Beckenfree Church. But actually what he does is he doesn't see us there. He looks and sees the best of God's team at that time turning up. I put it like this so you can see who it is. Uh, it's there in verse 7. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. Let me tell you, if anybody is ready to meet God, it's these guys. They take God more seriously than anybody else on the planet. And what does John say to them? Can you look at verse 7? You brood of vipers. I think the bottle fits like this. Okay? And the reason why he calls them a brood of vipers, vipers spread poison. They're poisonous snakes. And when he calls them that, he's not having a bad day in the House of Commons where insults like that fly all the time. No, he's been deadly serious because the poison that they spread is the poison that says, you don't have to worry about this. Now you're part of God's people. You're scribes, you're Pharisees, you're doing your best. You believe what Abraham believed. And therefore there's nothing to worry about, is there? That's the poison that is spread about hell. It's just not worth the worry. You can find a way to be good, to be in part God's family, and it won't come near. And friends, if you think you can avoid hell by doing the right thing in God's family, that is poison. Shall I say that again? If you think you can avoid hell by doing the right thing in God's family, that is poison in your system. That's what you think. And I'll tell you, the, most, the hardest person to convince about this, I think, is me. Because I know what it says in the Bible about hell. I've read it. But I just think that hell is the place for Adolf Hitler and maybe Al Capone or a few people like that. 
I don't think I need to be too fussed. After all, most of the people talking in this kind of way are usually crazy, aren't they? You go around Oxford Street and you see the guy with the placard and you think, you're nuts. And you look at John the Baptist and you think, well, the way he's dressed, he looks nuts too. I mean, who wants to spend his time eating grasshoppers? Uh, even if they're dipped in honey, they don't uh, really do much for you, do they? Except I'll tell you something. That the Lord Jesus is the most sane and loving person that ever lived. He's not one of the crazies. And he spoke about hell more than anybody else. And if the most loving man that ever lived tells us this is a warning, I take it as a loving thing to say. To that meeting God will be undiluted wrath and unquenchable fire. So please, please take it in. Because it's only when we understand what hell is like and how near it is that we'll do what John tells us to do, which is to repent and turn round. Um, it's not a very difficult concept why even my car satnav can tell me how to repent. Here's a picture of the, my car satnav telling me to repent. Um, imagine yourself uh, going from Dagenham, that you want to go towards Dagenham, right? Except you notice the car is pointing towards Raynham. And so what you want to do if you want to get to Dagenham is to go out the next roundabout you can and head back to Dagenham again. You've got to repent and go back the way you came. And go into the place you're meant to be going to and turn round. And this week I've been trying to show myself the seriousness of this. And so I found a, a sermon. They reckon it is the very best sermon ever preached in English. And it was preached by a man called Jonathan Edwards on the 8th of July, 1741, in a place called Enfield in Connecticut. And the sermon was called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, and he describes that life is like walking over a rotten cover. And already it's been torn in lots of places, it's flimsy, and any minute now it can give under your weight, and all you've got to cling to is nothing but air to keep you from the flames. And it's all over. And John says, that is what might be your next step. So please turn round now. Repent. Don't think it'll be safe when you meet God. In verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's another way of saying, and keep going that way. Don't, don't go down to Raynham and you say, okay, now I need to go back to Dagenham, I'll do a U-turn, I'll go around the roundabout and I head back, only to get to the bull roundabout and say, actually, I fancy going back to Raynham and then turn around the bull roundabout and you're pointing back in the same direction again. And friends, I, I, I don't want to equate Raynham with hell. 
Um, this is just an illustration. But I can understand why some people do. Um, but the hard thing that uh, we need to take in is that actually the turnaround is important because, believe it or not, the way we live infuriates God. Because what infuriates God the most is pride. And pride leads to hell. And we can be proud in two ways, can't we, if you think about it. First, we can be proud by breaking God's law. Because what we're saying is essentially, uh, we know better what to do at this moment in time than what God tells us to do. And there's a very uh, proud uh, disobedience in that. It's proud to think that God's law are fences that hem me in rather than foundations on which I could build my life. That's a very proud position to take. But pride also comes in the good that we do. Because it's actually pride to think that we can do stuff to impress God. So this little person thinks that he can do God a favor by doing something good as if God needs me to make his world a better place. And so my friends, if the good that we do and the bad that we do are expressions of our pride, we need the warning of hell, don't we? Because God hates pride. And let me remind you again, it leads to undiluted wrath and unquenchable fire. We've just got to take this in. Meeting God is hell. That's why I think it's great to have the ending. Because once you understand that, you understand the answer to hell. And the answer to hell is not a warning, it's a pointer. And it's a pointer towards humility. If pride is the problem, humility is going to be the answer. And you enter Jesus, and the thing that strikes John immediately is the humility that Jesus has. Here's God himself, and John's conscious that he is way out of his league to uh, even listen to him in verse 11. He says, I'm not even worthy to carry the sandals. And yet, what does Jesus want? He says, I want you to treat me like a sinner, like everybody else, and baptize me in verse 13. And John immediately, of course, uh, uh, spots uh, the mistake there. Uh, in verse 14, he says, now Jesus, look, if you're perfect, and I'm the sinner, it'll work much better if you do the baptizing. That, that's what I think. I, it wouldn't be right for me to act as if I'm the righteous one and you're the sinner. And Jesus then goes on to say something really strange as the reason why he wants John to go on. He says, I want you to do this in uh, verse uh, uh, 14, he says, uh, sorry, in verse 15, it is fitting for us 
to fulfill all righteousness. That's another way of saying to bring all righteousness to completion. That's what he's really saying. But it still doesn't make sense, does it? What does that mean? Well, the thing is, you wouldn't understand what that meant until you get to listen to what God says in uh, verse after that. Because when Jesus was baptized, he comes out the water, and in verse 17, the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, concentrate on this bit, because uh, actually, this will explain everything. You see, those words that God speaks in verse 17, this is my son in whom I were pleased, they are flashbacks to not one, but two passages in the Old Testament. The first one, this is my beloved son, is a flashback to Psalm 2. Remember, that's the psalm we sang in the first song that we sang today, about how God says to, you, uh, to, to, to his son, uh, you are everything to me and I'm going to give everything to you. And anyone who gets uh, to, in your way to resist you uh, will be crushed. You are my son. Psalm 2. But the second flashback at the end of that little verse is a flashback to what the prophet Isaiah said about God's son when he comes and that is that he would be a suffering servant which seems like a contradiction but he says that but God says he is well pleased with the person who is going to be the suffering servant in Isaiah and then what Isaiah goes on to say what he means by a suffering servant is someone who will suffer in the place of sinners. That's what ultimately Jesus did when he died on the cross. But in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, did I stick that in your notes? If I haven't, stick it in your notes. Luke chapter 12, verse 50, where Jesus actually talks about his death as his baptism. where he takes the place of the suffering servant. And here he is, in his first baptism, he's taking the place of sinners, to be treated as if he was a sinner, so that he can fulfill all righteousness, so that he can bring righteousness to completion. In other words, so that he can give righteousness to you after paying, you, paying for your sin. And that's exactly what uh, uh, Paul says happened. Uh, I've written it down there for you, it's on your notes as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the point. And so therefore in verse 16 you have this wonderful scene where God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all there in one verse which shouts out loud and clear that everything about God wants us to be righteous. 
because this suffering servant will bring righteousness to completion by what he does. So was John wrong then to say that Jesus would bring undiluted wrath and unquenchable fire? Well, when you spit it like this, you see that actually John was spot on when he tells you how Jesus will come and do Psalm 2. He will separate and he will burn. But before he comes as that great king, which he will do in his second coming, to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, so on, he comes in his first coming to be the suffering servant, to be treated like a sinner because he wants to save you. And those who are under undiluted wrath and unquenchable fire, even they can have his righteousness. But it's because of Jesus' baptism, not because of your baptism, that the righteousness can be yours. Now, that's a lot to take in, but let me just try and make it slightly easier to take home by just asking you to identify yourself in one of three different groups of people. First, would you identify yourself with someone who might be new to all this, maybe not a Christian? What should you take home with you this evening about meeting Jesus? Well, please, will you let John, not me, I'm not wanting to make this up as I go along. I'm just pointing out what's there, right? Please let John tell you what it's going to be like to meet God, to meet him. It is going to be undiluted wrath and unquenchable fire when you do. And people might say, look, uh, become a Christian because uh, well, we've got lots of good reasons. You get to meet people like this and they're good friends. There's lots of other things that uh, make sense about following Jesus today. But if you leave this out, you're leaving out the main thing. And I absolutely hate it when anybody wants me to make a decision without giving me the full information first. It is poison to think that you're going to be all right on the night when the time comes. And it's pride to ignore the warning of hell. So my friends, go the humble way as you walk from this evening. Repent of the pride that says, I've got nothing to fear. And ask Jesus to save you from hell by giving you his righteousness. Plead for it. And then then do the roundabout thing and go back to where you were pointing before. No, stay humbly obedient to Jesus from now on. What happens, sorry, I should have told you that, shouldn't I? Uh, do the repenting thing and keep going the new way. What happens if uh, you've been to church lots and you meet Jesus? Well, let me tell you, friends, that uh, you have poison in your system 
if you think that hell will never happen to you because you happen to be part of a church and you happen to be a nice person and generally you do the right thing. Let me ask you, are you bearing the fruit of repentance? Is there real change going on as you follow Jesus? Are the changes happening in the major areas, not just on Sundays and church services? Uh, and I, I think uh, one way to perhaps look at it is to sort of talk about changes that are happening uh, in the f- areas of the four G's. Not four G's, many G's. So, for example, uh, gold. Does money drive your decisions? Or are you generous? Gold. Uh, what about uh, girls? Or maybe in your case, guys. Are you battling to keep your thoughts pure? What about grub? Can that be too much for God for you? What about grog or other addictions? What about Google? Where are you going on the internet? What about uh, Gogglebox? Do you watch any program that comes on? Or are you discerning? Would you keep going if the Game of Thrones was being shown? And then I think this is a good G to include as well. Going to bed late. Because if I go to bed late, I've effectively decided that God won't be part of my tomorrow. My tiredness will stop me. Remember the Pharisees, the very best people in church. And they were infected by the poison of thinking, I'll be okay. And my friend, you could be in danger. And serious danger, because John says the axe is already at the root. It's not something he'd want you to take lightly. And then lastly, what happens if you're real? But let me say, that those four Gs, they kind of strip the, uh, the unproductive life down to what is the productive life. And what is the productive life? Well, in the end, it is to be little John the Baptist. So that we need to be the voice before the one comes with the winnowing fork to explain what it'd be like when he gets here. When uh, Billy Graham died, uh, someone said, the megaphone has gone, so the rest of us little microphones had better turn the volume up. Well, actually, you can say that even more after the message of John. The great megaphone has gone. It's time for us little microphones to turn the volume up, to tell people that, and to tell ourselves, that before Jesus comes back, there are two things everyone must know. One is the warning of hell and the baptism of John. Two, 
the answer to hell, which is the baptism of Jesus. Let's pray and ask God to take these, help us to take these lessons in, to live them, to speak them. In a moment of quiet, let me give you a minute to pray, and then after that, I'll pray for all of us. One minute first. You speak to God in line with what he has spoken to you tonight. Gone, let me pray. The Apostle Paul wrote, while people are saying there is peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them. Almighty King, we'd ask you tonight to help us to urgently turn from the danger of hell to the answer of the Lord Jesus. And would you help us to encourage others to repent, as John did, so that our peace and safety and theirs will not be suddenly destroyed. Please, Holy Spirit, help us to live with the righteousness of Jesus, with whom his Father is well pleased. And Father, we pray for that gift of righteousness for ourselves that our Heavenly Father might be pleased with us and we pray that in Jesus name Amen, Amen.